Stay tuned for the Moving Lives Forward podcast, helping you overcome everyday challenges and helping you help others in your community. Thanks to Metropolitan Family Service for moving lives forward. Welcome to the Moving Lives Forward podcast. I'm Rebecca Webb. Today we tackle the massive student loan debacle in America. Forbes estimates 44 million people collectively owe $1.5 trillion, a burden that threatens the homes and livelihoods of borrowers. How did it get this bad? As political commentator and comedian Hassan Minaj observed in a recent Patriot Act episode on Netflix, it wasn't supposed to be this way. The first student loan program was developed because America was losing the space race. In 1957, the Soviets successfully launched Sputnik. It was the first man-made satellite, and it was a really big deal. CBS Television presents a special report on Sputnik 1. The vital question that everybody is thinking about, why and how did the Russians beat us to the draw? Right now, it's north of Auckland, New Zealand, and moving southeast. So in 1958... (laughs) Congress passed a bill called the National Defense Education Act to fund higher education. It was a huge success. In 1959, there were 3.6 million students in college. Within a decade, that number doubled. And in 1969, we finally had enough film students to fake the moon landing. (laughs) But now student loan debt surpasses even credit card debt in the U.S. and can plague a borrower or her family for life. So what's a student or graduate to do? Here to help us understand and navigate the student loan crisis is Mark Oliver, financial coach at Metropolitan Family Service. Welcome, Mark. Thank you very much. So glad you're here. How did we go from that fantastically successful program to educate American students to such a big mess? What's the sort of cause of all this? I don't think you could identify a single cause. I think it's actually a really complex set of occurrences that happened over the course of 60 years that include uh, political decisions and lobbying efforts by private lenders and a number of other things. The U.S. Education Department is taking a lot of the blame in a federal watchdog report that was just released in February 2019. It says the department essentially failed to supervise loan servicers who took advantage of students. Isn't the Education Department the entity that should be helping students? I think that's exactly right. And at times it has helped students. Um, I do think there have been some problems of late and there are a number of lawsuits, any number of lawsuits against the Department of Education right now. Who is suffering the most? Who owes the most money here and why? Well, one statistic uh, I've seen recently is that women borrowers are far more affected by, by student loan debt than men. Uh, I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head, though. Any theories on why that might be? Uh, I think women make less money in the workplace in many cases and are more prone to borrowing and need to borrow more. Let's look at how people are doing paying back all the money. Hmm. Apparently, there's a fairly high rate of uh, delinquency. Yeah, I've seen some pretty high numbers of delinquency. Um 11.7%, I think, currently is the most current numbers I've seen. Uh, Default rate in the 20s as well. Uh, And projections are, by 2024, a 40% rate. Uh, Mm. So the the projections are to worsen. So it goes from delinquency to default. Kind of give us an explanation of those parameters. Sure. 
you're delinquent if you uh, don't make a payment in 30 days on a loan. Um, after nine months of that, in the case of most federal student loans, then you are in default. Obviously, default is worse than delinquency. What's the worst thing that can happen to you if you default? There are a number <laughs> of bad things that can happen to you. Um, the most direct effect and most immediate effect would be uh, damage to one's credit rating. But also, um, there's a treasury offset program that can seize uh, some, someone's tax returns uh, for a number of years until the debt is paid off. And there are even cases of tax liens against people's property, private property, so homes that have been seized, um, things of that nature. Mm, very serious. Well, let's walk through the process. Let's say that you are a borrower and you see that it's possible that you will be delinquent. What should you do? There are a number of federal protections put in place by the Department of Education to help out in those circumstances. Um, there are, for example, there's an option to uh, enter into forbearance or deferral of payments for a time in the case of an emergency. You can simply contact your loan servicer and request that, and it should take immediate effect. Um, there are also income-driven repayment plans that can scale down payments to make them more affordable for you, or possibly to make them $0 payments, which would makes them look very much like a forbearance, but it works in a very different way. Can you define some terms for us? What is forbearance? What does that mean? Forbearance is simply a period of time where you're not making payments on your loan, but the interest on the loans continues to accumulate. Uh, and that's the case for both subsidized and unsubsidized loans. Any type of federal loans, the interest continues to accumulate. And is that contrasted with income-based? Well, it's probably program? most directly contrasted with the deferral program because deferral is a very similar concept, but the government continues to pay the interest on one's subsidized loans while one is in deferral. Deferral, forbearance, is there a best way to go? I think in many cases, those should be considered to be emergency steps. Uh, I think the better course of action for someone might be to consider an income-driven plan that, um, assuming one can afford it, one could actually make payments on the loan that are calculated to be affordable for a borrower. Okay, we're going to get a little bit more into how those work and some examples of who should do what, but I'm curious can my loan be uh, sort of discharged in bankruptcy if worst case scenario? In very rare cases, it can be. There is such a thing as a bankruptcy inclusion um, of student loan debt. However, it's a pretty high bar. You have to pass something called a Bruner test, which uh, demonstrates that repaying your debt is an unconscionable burden on your future. You have to prove, essentially, that you will always be in poverty. Um, and in most cases, I have seen cases where it's been included, but in most cases, that can't be done. There may be no easy way out, but there are some strategies for getting out of the student loan quicksand. And we're going to delve into those a little bit more when we come back. Stay tuned. Moving Lives Forward is a podcast by Metropolitan Family Service, an innovative and culturally responsive nonprofit in Portland. Each year, MFS helps over 18,000 people in our community move beyond poverty, inequity, and social isolation. For more, go to metfamily.org. Welcome back to Moving Lives Forward. 
Today, our topic is student loans, which are complicating, if not devastating, life for over 40 million Americans. This segment's about loan consolidation, and our guest is Mark Oliver, financial coach at Metropolitan Family Service. Thanks for sticking around, Mark. Thanks for having me. Loan consolidation really honestly seems like such a minefield. There are quite a few choices that might seem to offer a way out, but contain some kind of a pitfall. And honestly, researching this, I was absolutely floored that college students are expected to understand and navigate this kind of system. Sure, sure. What is the difference, really, Mark, between rehabilitation and consolidation? Rehabilitation is a relatively simple, straightforward program that allows someone who's in default to um, make a series of payments over the course of 10 months, which then will bring their loans current and will remove the default notification from their credit report and allow them to enter into income-driven repayment, for example, which you can't do until you've rehabilitated. Uh, Consolidation is actually um, taking all of your loans and merging them essentially with a new calculated interest rate that's the weighted average of each individual component loan and then starting from scratch with that new loan. So is the first thing you're going to want to do when you start getting into student loan trouble is to look at rehabilitation. Did I understand that correctly? I think if you were in default, yes, that's definitely something you can do. And it's something, honestly, that takes about 10 minutes. You can make a phone call to a loan servicer. They can set up a rehabilitation agreement and you sign the agreement and then you're on the way, really. It's very simple. Can you give us an example of someone who might want to do that? Well, let's say somebody is um, living at 150% poverty level, which is often the case with people I'm working with. So that would mean you're, as a single individual, you're making about $18,000 annually. In that case, your rehabilitation payment is going to be $5 a month for nine out of 10 months. There is one month you can miss. They all have to be on time, but they only have to be $5. So that's generally speaking, something that people can wrap their heads around and accomplish. And they might owe that $5 a month for a very long time. Well, after the loan is rehabilitated, um, if their income doesn't go up, they would most benefit from entering into an income-driven repayment plan, which would uh, make the payment $0. Okay. Uh, yeah. It could tell us more about that. So that would be, that's there are about eight different repayment plans, um, six of which are, six or seven of which are uh, income-driven. That means they calculate your disposable income and how much you can afford to pay on your loans based on your gross income, most recently reported gross income. So it's supposed to be an affordable payment for somebody. And also part of those, each one of those programs has its own forgiveness program. So in some cases, depending on the program, your loan balance will be forgiven after 20 years if there is a balance left. In some cases, it's 25 years. In some cases, it's 30 years. So this is sounding actually pretty doable, uh, rehabilitation and income-driven payments. Why is it so difficult to achieve? Well, I think that people don't know about them, for one thing. These are programs that are not well-publicized. They're difficult to wrap your head around, and they have a lot of terminology. That's all compounded by the fact that people have so much stress over these loan balances, and and they're barred from, from building wealth in many ways because of this. And so it's a natural instinct for people to sort of hide their heads in the sand or look for other 
assistance from some cases, but this is actually, these federal programs are actually the best source of assistance that you could find, I'd say. So does it matter if your loans are federal or private? It matters a great deal, yes. I think uh, in many cases, private student loans have, I've seen interest rates as high as 12%, which we're getting into credit card debt territory. And for a balance of $100,000, that's just I, very, very few people could pay that. In addition to that, private loans are not, uh, don't have the federal protections, such as income-driven plans. Um, rehabilitation is not something you can do, nor is, we well, might be able to consolidate it through another private lender. But, but so the protections just aren't there in the case of the private loans. So they're intimidating and frightening. And if I understood you right, these solutions are attainable if only people knew about them. Why don't they know? That is a good question. I think uh, you could possibly lay some of that blame on just communicating at the financial aid level. I don't know how well the exit counseling, I mean, everyone graduates and goes through student loan borrower exit counseling, but I, in some cases that's reading through a brief statement on a screen. I just don't think it's very comprehensive. We also have a lot of private student loan debt scams currently. So there are people leaving text messages and voicemails and offering to charge people to help them access these free programs on a, you know, sometimes hundreds or thousands of dollars. And people are taking them up on it because they're not informed. So that's a mission at Metropolitan Family Service that we've taken very seriously and talked to as many people as possible. So what should a borrower do when they receive offers of help? Because if you're desperate, that's going to sound, you know, appealing. Right. I think um, it, it certainly sounds appealing. And I think um, the best thing to do would be to hang up and to call a uh, nonprofit or to actually educate yourself using some of the federal websites. You can look at studentloans.gov and learn about any one of these programs uh, with some reading. You could also contact us for help as well. We'll give uh, some contact information here in just a second, but let's get back to the idea of forbearance and income-driven repayment. Is, are there any pitfalls that folks should be aware of in, you know, what's the worst sort of condition that each of those contains? I think um, in the case of forbearance, that's another thing. You're, you're in forbearance for a certain period of time where you're not making payments, but all of the interest continues to accumulate. And at the end of the forbearance, automatically, all of the interest is capitalized on the principal. So that's why income-driven plans should be prioritized over forbearance if possible, because you don't have that built in there. And I've seen cases of clients who started off with a $20,000 loan in the early 2000s and currently are up to $60,000 because they've participated in a series of forbearances and deferrals that have each time capitalized the interest on their loans. So you get a little bit of a break for a summed period of time, but ultimately you owe you owe more. Potentially much more. Yeah. And potentially something small too. It might. So taking a look at that interest that's accumulated, which you can do, anyone can do by logging into their, uh, the National Student Loan Data Service, nslds.ed.gov. You can look and see, there's a separate column for interest and principal, and you can see exactly what will be capitalized onto your principal. Great. Okay. Then income driven. Any pitfalls there? Uh, I think... Yes, there are some pitfalls and that just make it difficult to navigate, really. But I think it is probably an extremely beneficial 
program in that even if you're making a $0 payment, each of those payments counts towards a credit building opportunity because it's reported to the credit bureaus. It shows an on-time payment even if it's $0. However, you do have to recertify your income annually on or by the same date. And I think uh, it's very common for people not to have a record of that date. And then two months later, after making a $0 payment, they'll suddenly get a bill for $500. Hmm. And um, that can be daunting, obviously. Definitely. And of course, the goal for any borrower is to get their loan paid off. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll look at repayment options right after this. Moving Lives Forward is a podcast by Metropolitan Family Service, an innovative and culturally responsive nonprofit in Portland. Each year, MFS helps over 18,000 people in our community move beyond poverty, inequity, and social isolation. For more, go to metfamily.org. Welcome back to Moving Lives Forward, where the lives we're trying to move forward today are those who hold student loans. Mark Oliver, Metropolitan Family Service financial coach, is in the studio to help us unravel the student loan puzzle. And I forgot to ask you, Mark, when do students have to start repaying their loans? There's Well, it depends on the loan, actually. But for most, um, most of the Stafford loans, I think there's a six-month grace period from the date of graduation until you have to start repaying. Okay. And we're looking now in this segment at repayment plans. Can you change your repayment plan, by the way? You can, and you can do so really easily in a matter of seconds uh, by logging into uh, studentaid.ed.gov using your ID and password. Um, and then probably click on the link that says repayment estimator, which basically shows you a comparison between all eight or nine of the repayment plans and shows you what your monthly payment would be. Also incorporates uh, forgiveness options, shows you how much will be forgiven at the end of 20 years or 25 or 30. It's a really, really useful planning tool. And following that, you could just do it using that same website. You can commit yourself to a plan. But when I say commit, you're not committing long-term. You can change these at any time. So when you first finalize your loan and you have a payment plan, you can, for no charge and relatively easily, go in and change that repayment plan to suit your circumstances. Very easily, yes. Interesting. Is that only true for federal loans? Yes. Okay. If you are going to get some private loans in addition to your federal loan, different rules? You would have to probably call the lender and uh, negotiate something with them. Uh, I think in most cases, they are going to be aware of the fact that the loans you have are fairly predatory and they might be willing to work with you, but it's not a guarantee. There are no federal protections involved. Okay. So can you give us kind of a, an overview of what the repayment options are? There are a number of different plans that are incorporated in what are called income-driven repayment. Um, those calculate the affordability of a payment in different ways, but they're all based on the federal poverty scale and um, how much your gross income is above or below 150% of the federal poverty limit for your household. Um, there are in that category, income-based repayment, income-contingent repayment, pay as you earn, revised pay as you earn, and they are all look somewhat different when you're looking at that I mentioned the repayment estimator a moment ago. That's what can give you the details of 
to help you understand what you're committing to. There are also, um, there's a standard repayment plan, which simply uh, repays your loan in a 10-year period, uh, including all interest and principal. So that's um, not income-driven at all. It's just a flat rate that is calculated to repay your loan in a 10-year term. And then there are extended and graduated repayment plans that um, scale your payment up over time, which are intended for, I think, people that are going into fields where they can anticipate a higher income in a certain period of time and repay their loans accordingly uh, at moments when they can afford higher payments. But at any point, at any point, if those calculations are wrong, you can sign up for income-driven repayment. Okay, and what about with so many students uh, going back to school? How does that affect repayment? That's a good question. They essentially, if you were to go back to graduate school, let's say after a, after a period of time out of school, your loans will automatically go into deferment. So you don't really have an option there. They, they just do. Um, so you don't make payments. Uh, the interest will accumulate on your unsubsidized loans, however. So uh, in, I would recommend considering paying that interest while you're in graduate school, just so that it doesn't capitalize at the end of that deferment. Mm -hmm. Can you go ahead and pay off your loan anytime if you're able? Yes. As a matter of fact, anytime you're on the phone with a default resolution group or a collection agency, that's the very first question they will ask you. Are you able to pay the full balance of your loan today? It's a little absurd to hear that in some cases, but that's, I think they must be required to ask that question. Yes. There's no penalty for paying early. No. Okay. Are there some misconceptions that you could share with us that borrowers may have about student loans? Misconceptions. Um, like that they can't change their repayment plan, for example, that they're just that they're stuck with in, what perhaps. they, yeah, they were locked in. Yeah, I think that's definitely one of them. And I would also say that I don't think, I think it's not really a misconception, but it's just a lack of knowledge. I don't think very few people, I think, understand the forgiveness options that are built into the income-driven plans. So I don't think people know that after 20 years in this certain plan, your loan balance will be forgiven. I also don't think they know that if that is to occur, all of the forgiven balance will be considered taxable income for them in that tax year. So that mm. if it's $120,000 is forgiven, that could be a pretty significant tax bracket change for most people. Gulp. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that you can go to work for a nonprofit as a way of paying off your student loan. How does that work? There is a program that um, was started in 2007 that's called the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, which it was intended to attract people to lower paying professions like social work and uh, government service, public service of various kinds. So it's not restricted to nonprofit work. It also includes work at libraries and government agencies and the military. So um, those are all included in the public service rubric. It sounds like a great solution. I mean, if you could go get a job at a nonprofit or at the oh. library and pay off your debt, why not? Yeah, and it it's, simplifies things because it reduces the amount of time that you have to actually make payments to 10 years. You have to be, one of the things I don't think it's commonly known is you have to be signed up for an income-driven repayment plan or the standard repayment plan. Every single payment you make to count for its forgiveness, which is 120, um, 120 payments, you have to be making under a qualified repayment plan, 
one of the ones I just mentioned. You also have to be with working full-time for a qualified employer, a nonprofit or library, for example. What if I work for a nonprofit for five years and my job has ended there? Mm-hmm. What happens to my loan then? If you were signed up for public service loan forgiveness, as soon as you terminated employment with that agency, you would stop making qualified payments. So um, that might be incentive to look for another public service position for five more years. Even a, I don't know. I mean, that's going to be an individual decision for somebody based on what their career goals are, I think. But you don't lose that investment that you've Oh, made. no, you certainly do not. Okay. That will still count. Before we go, I just want to talk about some of the proposals um, in at our state legislative level. I think in Oregon and Washington, there are bills. How are our government officials trying to help us? There's a number of different policy proposals nationwide occurring at the state level. In the Northwest, we have uh, In Washington, currently, there's an attempt to create a state loan program that would have a maximum interest rate of 1.5% with a maximum repayment period of 15 years, um, which could really be a good answer to some more predatory options. Oregon is also attempting to start a state loan program this year, and as well as declare a state of student loan emergency in the state. That's from the Attorney General's office, um, a bill that was delivered by Attorney General Rosenblum. And how would that help? Uh, It would create an office uh, to support student loan borrowers, for one thing, at the state level. It would also more strictly regulate uh, student loan servicers at the state level. You've really given us a lot of good information. Thanks so much for joining us today for Moving Lives Forward. It's been my pleasure. We'll provide links to all the resources Mark Oliver mentioned in this episode at prp.fm. Go to the podcast co-op and find the Moving Lives Forward podcast, episode two, Strategies for Attacking Student Loan Debt. Moving Lives Forward is a product of Portland Radio Project in partnership with Metropolitan Family Service. This episode is produced by Nishtasia Voisin, recorded and edited by Daniel Lin. I'm your host, Rebecca Webb. See you next time. Mm-hmm.